ATV Talk, the podcast. Sit down with your host industry professional, Leonard Duncan, as the men and women from the ATV world bring their behind-the-scenes stories to life. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember, dream big. It could be your story one day. GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Green Ball Corp, has been producing industry-leading tires for ATV side-by-side market for over 25 years with tires like Mongrel, Dirt Devil, Terra Master, XC Master, Dirt Commander, and Groundbuster. They have a tire for your application. Top racers from GNCC, Works, and Best in the Desert rely on GBC Power Sports tires. So why shouldn't you? Go check them out at gbctires.com to see the full line of tires they offer. Thank you very much. GPR Stabilizer, a leader in steering dampener technology, brings you the new Q5 Sport ATV dampener with better control and handling with an upgraded vane and seal system. Go check it out today, www.gprstabilizers.com or call 619-661-0101. Don't forget to tell them ATV Talk Sandy. Hey everybody, today I have a special treat. We have Robbie Bell with us. He is a champion Baja rider. He's also been a champion at the World Off-Road Championship Series. Uh, he's pretty amazing. He's a busy, busy guy, and he take took out some time with us here at ATV Talk. Robbie, how are you, sir? Doing good. Just uh, ate some dinner with the family, and uh, I'm happy to be on your podcast and give this conversation leads. Awesome. Awesome. I've been a big fan for a long time. Uh, I know I come from the ATV world and yes, ATV guys do like motorcycles. Um, I don't know if the, the, the reverse goes, I don't know if the motorcycle guys like us as much, but, but we're, but we're huge fans. I've, I've raced in Baja, worked with guys in Baja and I've got to see your, your handiwork there. Um, how did you get involved with Baja racing? Oh, that takes me back. Um, shoot, we're talking 17 years ago, 18 years ago now. That's crazy to think. But um, the yeah, the best the best way I can put it is so my my dad he owns Precision Concepts. It's he's always had a passion for doing suspension. Turned that into a business, and what four or five years after he started his own business, um, just through through making connections, helping people down in District 38. He, uh, he got in touch or just got connected with Johnny Campbell at American Honda and, um, started doing suspension for American Honda. And so just, I was always, you know, riding and my dad would take me to the races here and there. It's like best in the desert. I think I went, I'm not sure I ever went to Baja before I went down to Baja to race, to be honest. But, um, but just from taking me to the Grand Prix, I think it was actually at LACR Grand Prix in 2004, um, where Johnny first kind of, maybe I caught his eye. And so he just started talking to my dad, like, Hey, do you think you'd be interested in riding Baja? And my dad was like, I have no idea. Cause at that time I wanted to be a motocross racer and I was kind of burned out on the moto scene. So I was trying some Grand Prix and you know, desert was just never in my perception. But, um, but anyway, Johnny and, and Bruce Ogilvy, they approached me and asked, you know, would you like to, uh, 
you know, we, we basically like to kind of give you a tryout, take you down to Baja, do a free run, do a mileage run, see how you like it. <laughs> Mind you, I was maybe five ten at this time. I was probably almost six foot at this time, but like 140 pounds. So uh, they were going to put me on the huge 650. So that was quite the culture shock. But I decided, yeah, let's do this because I can get a couple 450s out of it and keep uh, keep my motocross dream alive on the side. You know, I didn't have to tell them that I was uh, secretly using this to further my motocross inspirations. But um, but anyway, that that's honestly how it started. It was just kind of the connections of my dad being associated with factory Honda doing the suspension and then just kind of me being around the races. And then, you know, I guess kind of right place, right time. Johnny, I got caught Johnny's eye and Bruce decided to take a chance on me. They took me down for a mileage run and yeah, it was a big bike and I was uh, really tall and really lean and not very strong. So it was a huge learning curve, but, um, but yeah, I gave it a shot and, and that's kind of where it started. And what year was that that you started riding down in Baja? It was so the, the mileage run would have been the end of 2004. I think that was Kendall's first time racing with them. He raced the thousand in 2004, and then uh, yeah, 2005 is when I started uh, started with American Honda. Kendall Norman was my teammate, and we went to Parker 250. That was our first race together. Both of us watered our brains out, um, so it was a match made in heaven. <laughs> and uh, yeah, a couple couple months later, lined up for San Felipe 250 on the 300 300 pound XR 650. What did you think of that bike? Um, looking back, like I, I very much respect it for for what it was built for. Like it's, I think it's still a really competitive Peninsula run bike. Um, you know the the 450X obviously took its place, and I think that was that was purposeful. I think um, I think the 650 is still competitive. It's just if nothing else just because it's so reliable and and in a straight line even over whoops on a straight line if you know if you have a proper technique i think you can go faster than a 450 even in pretty gnarly whoops the problem is if you one get out of shape or two when you try to go to slow down that's where you can get into trouble so um but yeah so anyway to answer your question looking back i definitely respect the bike and it was it was a great learning curve for me um you know it it, it taught me it taught me more respect for uh, how how quickly you can get out of shape and how quickly you can get into trouble at speed, especially being on something that big that doesn't slow down very quick. It it definitely lulled you, and even on the smaller bikes, but on the 650, it lulled you into uh, not realizing how fast you were going, especially like on a dry lake or or a road where you don't have a lot of vegetation to kind of have that um, what would you call it like that that visual cue of how fast you're going. And all of a sudden you notice either a turn or something come up and you start to slow down. And that's when you realize how fast you're going. So it was, it was definitely a beast to ride. Um, but, but it was, yeah, it was a cool bike. And then, uh, so we, we ended up racing the 650 the first year. And then and that was in 2005 and 2006 was when the 450 X, uh, kind of became our priority. And Bruce Ogilvy could kind of see the writing on the wall that just in a more general sense, you know, more of the more of the focus as far as bikes were concerned we're kind of going more close course racing even for off-road and so he wanted he wanted us to uh to develop the 450x and obviously american honda at the time was very much a baja and best in the desert oriented team so we uh we spearheaded the effort to develop that bike for you know for those venues with an eye towards in the, in the next well alongside that and in the future um for like works and and uh, close course Grand Prix and Hound racing. 
Did you ever get to ride the XR600? No, I never got to ride that. And I don't know if I'm happy or sad about that. I did hear they liked, they liked to uh, wind up and I think kick to the left if you got yourself into trouble and deep whoops. So especially with my, with my uh, slight frame back then, I mean, I'm still pretty lean, but back then I don't think I would have the strength to hold on to that thing. I, I, I came from the 600. I loved it. I never got on the 650. I'm a little short. Um, and, and yeah, it's a big bike for me. Mm-hmm. The, the 600 was, um, it, it was so, it handled so good. I mean, it was, Did it. yeah, it was just plush, you know, a lot of, yeah, fun. I mean, the 650 was, yeah, the 650 was the same way though. I mean, and you get on, uh, I like the story that Johnny told the year that he went to Dakar and, um, and I think in testing for Dakar, because I obviously had a lot more weight with the gas, with the gas. So it's not exactly a, a corollary, but basically because the bike was so plush and it, it was just so comfortable to ride, he was blowing out wheels because he could hit the rocks so hard and he didn't feel them. So he actually had to adjust his riding because the bike works so good and so plush over the rocks to, uh, so that way he could, you know, like his wheels wouldn't basically blow apart because he could hit everything so hard because it, it was just that comfortable. But that, that's the way that the 650 was. I mean, you get on some of those Baja roads and even if they're rocky and kind of cratered out, you could still sit on the seat. I mean, I remember it having a pretty big padded seat. You could sit on the seat and, and turn it up to 70, 80, 90 miles an hour, even if it, if it was, you know, pretty choppy and rocky and have confidence and it was pretty comfortable. What was the fastest that you ever got clocked on that machine? Um, I think the fastest when I had a GPS on was maybe 109. I know, uh, I can't remember the exact miles per hour, but, um, Steve Hengeville, they, my dad loves the story of when, uh, they met with a magazine might've been cycle news. I can't remember, but it was, it was touted as just like, Oh, just, you know, uh, a, a side by side of the XR 500 and that, or sorry, the KX 500 and the XR 650. And, um, so Kawasaki was out there and it ended up being basically a speed run down a dry lake. And so, uh, the, the story is that they, they taped up Steve's like Steve's jerseys, like no wind drag trying to get him as, as, you know, get, get as little wind drag as possible. They took the front fender off, took the radiator shrouds off, you know, no wind drag there. They, they pushed out all of the, uh, um, the brake calipers, like, you know, separated the pads basically so there wasn't any drag there and i want to say he got up to like 126 or 127 and um and then he said it was freaky because then he had to like pump up the brakes you know to get him to finally work when he decided to slow down so he said it was a little sketchy but uh but anyway so i yeah i, I don't think i ever broke 110 uh at least not with a you know with a gps that i know of but you know, who knows in a race we, we gps my xr 600 when i raced vegas reno in year 103 mm-hmm that was then that was plenty fast enough for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's almost exponentially faster when you get up around a hundred that, you know, like 90 to a hundred doesn't feel as, as much of a difference as like 100 to 105 or 100 to 107, like that gap, even though it's closer, feels like you're going that much faster. How tough was the competition back then for you guys? Um, I mean, early days, it was, in 2005, that was when KTM first started coming down. It was Chris Blaze and I think Quinn Cody, if I'm not wrong. Um, but yeah, they, they were kind of, 
they were kind of getting into it in 2005, I remember, um, because yeah, I, I think Johnny and Chris were right in front of me as we were hitting the, the whipped out power line road that parallels highway three. And then I just I actually came down my very first San Felipe 250 in 2005, hitting, you know, four or five foot deep car whoops in, in sand and found like the, one of the few rocks there. And literally, so my front tire must have come down right next to it. And it actually, the brake rotor hit the rock and bent the brake rotor. And so when the rotor came around into the caliper, it locked up the front end and just shot me into the cactus. And I had so much choya just covering me. Um, and that, that was my first experience in Baja. Literally, I just like, I think I did a front flip and then landed on my back in cactus and then flipped through the cactus. And I remember riding to the next pit and uh, like two choya balls dangling off my helmet and just tapping against my neck the whole ride through all the whoops. So that was less than pleasant. But um, going back to your question with a competition, it was it was tough. But I think for Kendall and I, it was more just learning the racing the first year. Um, and then the second year with a 450X, I remember it. I remember there being some like, I, I want to say like Travis Pastrana raced one of them. Maybe that was those seven. So there was like on and off, you know, like uh, interested parties. But realistically, and, and I mean, I don't... It, I don't want it to sound arrogant, but like, honestly, we, we always felt like it was either going to be the eight team or the B team Honda that was going to be, you know, cross the finish line first, just cause we, we believe so much in like the preparation and, you know, just what Johnny and Bruce, like their, their wealth of knowledge and, and, um, you know, how, how well we were prepared for all the variables, even the ones that you didn't know were going to happen, just how quickly we could pivot and, and be, you know, be prepared for anything that was going to come our way. And I, have to say that that kind of proved true during that era. Um, you know, when we b- went back down, when I went back, back down on the Cowie, when KTM got back into it and then we were racing Honda, like that was, you not to jump too far ahead, but that was probably way too fast as far as how hard we were all pushing each other. So I want to say like 2005 to eight when I was on Honda, it was, you know, Baja was, it was almost like the golden age. As far as I know it for Baja, you know, I, I came in just after they started speed controlling the highways and I'm pretty happy about that because I, I heard the, the crazy stories about guys splitting semis wide open down the highway under race speed going, you know, 90, a hundred miles an hour. And I'm good not having experienced any of that, but we still, it was before, um, it was before a lot of like, you know, the waypoints and, and the GPS tracking. So there was a little, it was a little more liberal as far as line selection and, it was before kind of Google Earth came into it. And it, I, I feel like Google Earth kind of opened up just how much you could really open open your eyes to what was possible as far as line selection. Like being in watches, you know, a mile over, mile and a half over that normally it's like, okay, when you're riding, you're not just going to stop and take a 90 right and ride for two miles just to see what's over there. But all of a sudden, I felt like Google Earth came around and you're like, you're just looking at where the course is and you look over, hey, I wonder where that little that single track goes, you know, something that shows up and then you can go, you know, remember that or GPS it when you're up here running the next day. And that really opened it up. That's when it, I think got a little bit crazy at times as far as the, the lines. Cause up to that point, it was just kind of like everybody kind of knew there were, there were the quote unquote Honda lines, but like the, the competitive teams kind of knew what the lines were. So it was still, you know, it, it was still uh, kind of like, that gentleman's understanding of like, yeah, they're, they're aligned. We like, you know, it's, it's the wild west, it's Baja, it's off road and you take creative lines, but there wasn't like, 
necessarily you're cutting off 60 miles of course or you know, three miles of course or whatever. So, um, yeah, anyway, it was, it was just, it was kind of cool to, to be in that, that era of Baja where it was still, still somewhat uncontrolled, but I'd say safer than it was maybe the previous five or eight years when, um, yeah, when there were some pretty crazy accidents down there in the bikes. Yeah. You guys were just flying. The speeds were unbelievable. Let's, let's get into the competition that KTM Kawasaki and Honda had trying to to take that throne and, and that title away from Honda. Um, how big of a deal really was it? It's, I'd say in, in our circle, it was a really big deal just because Honda had had like once Kawasaki pulled out 96, 97, um, you know, Honda was obviously the dominant figure all the way up through this would have been like 2010 or 11. Well, I guess 2009 was when I went back down on the Kawasaki for the first time. And, uh, so it was a year after I split from Honda. And so I had retained the one X plate because the one X is in the rider's name, the rider, rider of records name. And that, um, so I had retained the number and which was cool because it, it you know, it was, it was, uh, it allowed me an opportunity because like monster got behind it and, and Bruce Penhall actually approached us and he had this vision of like, let's, let's go down on a Kawasaki with one X on it and let's go try to beat Honda at the thousand. And so with monster and I think Wahoo's fish tacos, like some, some pretty big sponsorships, we had a, a really good effort and we're the first team to physically beat Honda across the finish line since I want to say 96. So that would have been 13 years. And then, uh, but we ended up just missing out on the overall and adjusted time. But that was, that was a pretty big deal. And that kind of started the, uh, that was the, the flame or the ignition of the flame to go down there and like, okay, it's doable. We got to, we got to do this now. And, uh, what's crazy about it is that it ended up taking what five years, five years to finally, um, finally get the thousand win and then also win the one X outright. And, um, so it, I think that just shows how tough it was down there and not only the conditions, not only the, you know, just the, whatever, whatever can happen in Baja, you know, the uh, durability of the bikes and the riders and everything, but also just the, the competition. I mean, during that era, kind of 2011, 12, when KTM started coming into it, like from 2012 to you know 13, yeah, kind of those two years, honestly, I think we were pushing the pace a bit too hard. And I mean, it's a personal belief. Other riders could have different feelings, but man, I think we were pushing the pace too hard down in Baja just for the, for the, uh, you know, kind of the unknowable and, and, um, unexpected things that can happen down there. And that, uh, yeah, it, 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 it kind of culminated obviously in, in losing Kirk which was just such a shockwave through a whole industry and such a huge loss. And, um, you know, so I feel like in that kind of in that era, it was, it was almost too competitive. And I think we were, we were kind of taking the, the um, kind of the American based speed because, you know, a lot of us at that time were kind of like racing Grand Prix and Harrenhal where you could hang it out a little bit more and taking that down into Baja where it's like up to that point. I remember Johnny and, and Bruce telling me when I first rode on Honda, it's like race speed is like 90% usually. You know, you never, you never, it's like basically pre-run pace with just a little bit more intensity. You never really hang it out because you never know what's around the next corner, be it an, an animal, the Jeep, the truck, whatever. So, um, 
I think once in like 2011 and then 12 and 13, we were all kind of flirting with that 98, 99%, um, you know, where you're pushing that edge and you're, I think it was just too fast because shoot, I, I probably crashed. I mean, there were three races a year and I probably crashed at least three or four times a year between uh, 2012 and 2013. I, I probably once in each race, maybe twice in a couple of them, just because I was pushing too hard because it, one, it meant that much to try to get the win, but two, everybody else was going so fast. You had to like, it was kind of one of those things. It's like, okay, if you're in your 90% safe pace and you're going good, but then this guy wants to go 95% and kind of take that chance around the next right-hand corner of like, I don't think there's going to be a truck there. Or I, you know, I, I trust the helicopter is going to dive bomb them out of the way or, or, you know, alert me in some way, then they can make up time and they can go faster. And so we're all, it kind of, we're all not victims, but we all just, kind of unknowingly kept inching the pace up until I think it just got unsustainable. Did you get to ride with you feel the best desert racers in the world? Well, that's, I don't like to get into that conversation per se. I mean, cause it, it's, it's so hard generation to generation. The equipment's different. The competition is different. Like, I mean, obviously a lot of people think Kurt is, you know, very high up there on that list. And so i for sure honored to have been racing against him and with him. Um, I mean, Johnny's the most dominant rider, him and Steve, the most dominant riders in Baja. Uh, but I mean, just before I got into it, you know, obviously Danny, Danny Hamill and Dan Ashcraft, the guys that came before. So I think my, my knowledge of those eras aren't enough for me to say that I raced with the best, but I definitely raced with some of the best and guys that are up there on that list. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I, I I guess I'd broadly answer that. Yeah. That's very humble answer. That's pretty awesome. Um, that's, that's one of the reasons why I think you're such a great champion is because every time that I've seen you, um, and, and I'll, t- I'll be honest with you. One of the selling reasons why I think so highly of you is we were at the podium for a pro ATV race. And there was, I mean, the place was a ghost town. And you were there and you were engaged. You were, were interacting and uh, you were part of the celebration for those three men that had just rode their hearts out on their ATVs. You were actually enjoying their celebration. And I just thought that was so amazing. Um, I don't even remember what year it was, but it was at Prim. And, um, Mm. you know what? I think it was the finals. And then, uh, I went and, stole the ticket from uh, one of my sponsored riders and took your jersey on that day. <laughs> That's rad. So yeah, it, 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 it's a lot of fun. Um, you never get to watch Baja. Even if you're a spectator, you only get to see a second, you know, you go by it's over and you never get to see that rider again the rest of the day. Um, and when you're working with the ATVs, we start behind you and I never got to see the lead bikes at all. I mean, I, I worked down there from nine to 12, um, with, uh, Craig Christie and, uh, you were talking about Google earth and he did a bunch of homework with Google earth, setting up his pre-run schedule. And, and he would set everyone's schedule, give them a map and, and send them on their way. It was pretty awesome. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Google earth. Like I said, I think it opened it up quite a bit. And, um, yeah, the, 
one the one kind of bummer is um not bummer but like i was i was working like using gopros like just starting to use them as i was towards the end of my Baja career so it would have been really cool if that was kind of more of a feature i mean it, the technology was so young i'm not even sure if they were out when i was on honda like in mid 2000s but um i do wish i would have used them a little bit more when i was racing through the early uh, 2010s um there there's a couple of good GoPros on my YouTube channel, especially one where I'm going back and forth with Golden Mute all a few times and uh, in San Felipe. That's that's a pretty entertaining one. And I think another one in uh, the 500. But yeah, I wish there was a little bit more content because to your point, most people, they, they stake out a spot or even pit crews. You know, you just you come in, you just see them coming wide open down a road, you pit them and they're gone. Then you go to the next spot or um, or fans. Yeah, you just see them for maybe a total of 15 seconds. <laughs> you see more dust than you see bike. But um but it was really cool that I was able to capture some of that footage on GoPro. And um, I've, I've never been much of a nostalgic person. Like I, I don't keep a whole lot of trophies, um, but I have come to appreciate that. Like, you know, obviously assuming we don't have an internet apocalypse or anything like that, that all of my racing GoPros, a lot of racing footage is going to be online for my kids to see as they grow up. And, you know, so I can kind of point to it and be like, you know, that that was that was something that I did that I can hang my hat on and not so much like oh look how cool your dad was but like look at look at what I was able to achieve because I worked hard at something and and uh, um you know and and I, I think I'm almost more more proud of in kind of the lean years like to your point again about the the ATV podium where there was barely anybody there in like 2013 14 15 uh, racing works and and the American based stuff. And it was really tough on, uh, on the motorcycle economy then. And I was one of the few guys that was still able to kind of make a living racing. And it was actually when I started to, uh, just focus more on marketing and using, using the GoPros to my advantage and using it as a marketing tool to create value for sponsors and, and things like that. And so that made, uh, made a big difference in my career. It allowed me honestly to, to win the championships that I did in, in the American series. And, uh, so I think I'm, I'm almost more proud of the fact that I was able to kind of like catch onto that at the right time. And, um, and use that along with kind of like some, some writing, like race reports and, and kind of create a sellable package that allowed me to race when it was really tough to do so. How many works titles did you win? I ended up winning three in 2013 and then 15 and 16. And when, what year did you retire? I retired in 2017. Was there a specific reason you retired or was it just time? There were a few. So I remember sitting down with my old trainer in 2015 when I was uh, probably at, at the peak, at the peak of my career, just physically, mentally, everything and telling him, joking with him. It's like, cause I, I think I had won the first six or seven races of the year and uh, telling him like, ha, I'm going to keep doing this till I'm 40. And then, uh, and then the summer of 2015 was when I had kind of my first, first big wake up call, um, just pushing myself too hard and, uh, ended up blowing. Like that's when, when I over jumped to jump at Glen Helen during just an off season motocross race and came down right on, right on the crossbar, but like next to the pad where the, the metal like comes together where the arms connect. And so I came down right there on my chin and blew out, I think nine teeth. And, um, that definitely humbled me a bit, but I was able to kind of like get, I was able to get past that and then won the championship in 2016 and then 2017. So 
I guess a little more detail. So in 2016, um, in the summer 2016 was when my daughter was born. And so obviously that's a life changing event just in itself. And, um, literally two weeks before she was born, I broke my collarbone, which was just a great call to make to my wife. I remember because I was training at Paula and then, uh, I just ended up losing the front end and just smacked the ground so hard. I don't actually remember it. I just, I remember it because I had, was wearing a GoPro so I could see what happened, but, um, ended up just shattering my collarbone two weeks before my daughter's birth. And then, uh, and then it was slow to heal. So like during, during this time where I'm learning to be a dad, I'm also stressing because my collarbone's not healing. And, um, and I have a championship. I had like three or four rounds to go. And Dalton Shirey at the time was like nipping at my heels for the works championship. Um, and at, at one point I remember, cause I kept going to follow-ups to my doctor and the, the x-ray would show it's like, it's, it's still, it's healing a little bit, but it's just not there yet. It's not there yet. It's still really slow progress. And so finally I just, I, I looked at my wife and I'm like, I'm not going to the doctor again. Like, I don't care what he tells me. I just, I have to go race. It's plated. So shouldn't fall apart. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so I ended up racing the last few races, not knowing if my collarbone was, was healed yet or not, but not really caring either. And then, uh, ended up winning the championship and then going into 2017, um, I had a string of a couple bad crashes, which kind of like was culminated by, um, 29 palms, big six or NGP. I don't remember if it was NGP yet in, uh, 2017, I had, actually put on a really good ride a charge from maybe sixth or seventh to the lead passing the lead. And I, I was spent because it was, I remember it was warm um, that year in April and uh, I'd passed Eric Yorba a lot before. And I'm like, maybe, maybe a mile from the finish. So like I would have been to the finish line in like two minutes and, uh, and I was leading and I remember kind of glancing back and thinking that I saw Eric still right behind me. And so I was still pushing hard and it turned out it was just a lap ride, but I actually put out more of a lead. But because I kept pushing hard, even though I was so spent, I just lost the front end, did a, I don't know exactly how I crashed, but I ended up really injuring my ribs and then just ruining my back. And so that, that crash right there, I, I feel like, like the losing my teeth in 2015 was kind of like the start of my, like, you know, mind frame shift of like, okay, maybe, Maybe I'm not as, uh, invincible as I thought. Maybe this career isn't going to last as long as I thought, but I think that crash in 2017 at 29 Palms, when I realized that I hadn't been healthy for almost the first year of my daughter's life, that was when I was like, yeah, maybe I need to do something else and, and think of what's next. And so, uh, so that, that was a long winded way to answer your question. That's kind of what, what ended up, uh, making my mind up that 2017 was the last year. Wow. That's, that was, that was a great, great answer actually in an explanation. What did, what kind of conversations did you have with your wife leading up to that? Was she ready for you to retire? Uh, and, and, and uh, from what I've seen, she was always a huge fan. No, she was super supportive. I mean, she, she always told me that as, as, as long as I was happy and, wanted to achieve that, you know, keep going. But to be fair, I mean, we, we definitely, both of us had a love hate relationship with the sport just because of, you know, I think a lot of it stemmed from Baja and just, you know, how emotionally charged those times were just because I'm in another country for two, three weeks at a time. And, um, you know, fortunately 
server, you know, like there was Wi-Fi and everything that, that had come online, especially in the mid 2010s, early 2010s. So it was easier to stay in touch and you could FaceTime and stuff like that. But it was still tough just because I was out of the country and away from her for like three, three weeks or so. And then compounded with that going, you know, kind of looping it in with how fast we were pushing the pace and how many times I'd crashed down there. It, it, it seemed like uh, I know from her perspective, like every time I left for Baja, she's like, all right, am I going to have to meet him at a hospital? He's going to get flown over the, the border again this time. So, um, and then also with how difficult it was just kind of in the domestic economy with in motorcycle racing from like 2010, 2011 through 2015, it was always like, okay, it's, is, is this a good, a good way to make a living? Um, and fortunately it was, but it was always, always one of those things of like, okay, it's the best way I know how to make a living. But I, I think that 2015 came, you know, like when that first injury came and it was like, that light bulb of like, okay, this, this can't be my only way to make a living because if that was worse and then I can't race, then what's going to, what's going to happen. And 2016, when my daughter was born, it was like, and and obviously that, you know, the pressure came internally and just from the pressure of having a family of like, okay, now I need to, I need to be able to provide for my family and, and not have, you know, and, and if I'm injured or, um, which I was for a lot of McKenna's first year of life, then it was like, I'm not, I'm not providing, you know, I, I'm running the risk of not providing the opportunities to her that I could. So, so I think, I think that's a long winded way to say that, that Katie was super supportive of my whole racing career, but she was always kind of like that grounding force of like, you, you know, you're achieving and it's great. And we're, you know, like before kids, we were able to do some traveling and have some, a lot of fun with friends and it was great. It provided us a great lifestyle, but she was always like, okay, what's next? You know, where I was just like head down what's next? I'm going to the CrossFit gym tomorrow morning and then I'm going to Glen Helen. That's what's next where she was like, well, what's next in five years. And she still, she still does that for me. And that pushes me to, to be better because I, I definitely am not a master of that by any means. So, uh, so I think we balance each other in that quite well. And she, uh, she rounds me out. Well, when you look at most racers, most, not all, there's always the exception. There's still, thinking they're a young racer, even when they're 40. And mm-hmm. it seems to me like you've gotten past that and, and matured to the next level of life. Yeah. And I think it, in a way it was almost fortunate that I had the injuries to that weren't bad enough to where like I was, you know, wrecked from them, but they were just bad enough to, to change my mindset because I mean, ra- racing, it's, it's so easy, especially when, when you have enough success to where, you know, you, you can pay for the house, you can pay for some vacations and, and life's good. And, and you look at, okay, well, where could I just pivot, go to in a career sense and make that kind of money to where we can not change our lifestyle. And it's like, I'm going to keep racing because I don't see that. Um, and so it, it's so easy to just get sucked back into it. So I feel like I was almost fortunate that I had those injuries that, that showed me like, Hey dude, you just, you got to chill and you got to find something else and make it work. And it was stressful and it was scary and, um, and, and all the rest. But I think it almost forced me to, to put it behind me. And like, honestly, I think 2018 was, I mean, for sure, like the year after retiring was there were moments of like, I could still be out there because, you know, I, I kind of recovered my health some and felt pretty good. And like had, you know, the ego started to rise a little bit. Like I could, I could be out there with those guys. I could probably still be on the podium, 
but honestly, after that first year and just, just kind of like acknowledging that and saying like, yeah, you probably could, but what then you're going to go back and chase it for another five years, six years, or, you know, go down, go down the road you were going down and, um, and have just that, that one next crash or something like that. Um, and so, so I think after that first year, that's really when I was able to put it to bed and don't get me wrong. Like I, I still, there's, there's an ego in all of us and it creeps up on the weekends here and there when I'm out in the vet race and feeling good and, and flowing and just really, you know, feeling at one with the bike and everything. And like, man, I think I could still like get top five or maybe, maybe pushing those guys for the podium for like 30 minutes or something. But then, then obviously reality checks comes back and, and I'm very, very happy that I can only have to ride for an hour. I don't have to, I don't have to suffer if I don't want to suffer. Although to be honest, and it's, it's weird. It's kind of weird to say, but it's just interesting how, for an example, so a couple of weeks ago, I was riding with Tyler Lynn at Glen Helen and, um, and I was, you know, we were, we were kind of pushing each other, doing a little moto and I just had a crash and it kind of smashed my foot a little bit. And one of those was like a, a pretty good stinger. And I'm like, Ooh, I kind of missed that pain. And I'm, I'm like, it's kind of weird to think that, that it, you know, I don't know if it's, if it's some people, you know, they say pain makes you feel you're alive or, or if it's a reminder that you are kind of flirting with that edge and it's fun to flirt with that edge here and there, or, um, or if it's just because I, I suffered a lot when I was racing, you know, like we, we all do, um, that it just kind of takes you back to that moment. I'm not sure exactly which of those are the responsible or maybe it's a combination of all three, but, um, yeah, it's, it's just kind of funny to feel that like the next couple of days where my ankle was kind of, kind of swollen, a little sore. I'm like, yeah, I remember that <laughs> <laughs> almost, almost uh, looking back. Finally, an old friend. I want to go back in time a little bit because I didn't ask this question when we rolled into the works conversation. What was the deciding factor to leave Baja? Oh, that one is that one is interesting, and I think it's a. Uh, when I look back at it, it was kind of an immature decision. So, end of like the end of two thousand eight, which was my, ended up being my last year with Honda, uh, I. I had won, so I had won the, the one X number plate in 2007, six, seven, and eight. So I'd won it three years with Kendall, obviously. Um, we had won it. And, um, so I, I kind of felt like, okay, well, I've, I've done, I've done Baja, I've achieved there. I appreciate it, but I'd always had an eye towards, you know, achieving in the American base series. Um, and so, so I kind of mutually parted ways with, uh, with Johnny and JCR Honda at that time. And what's funny about it is for about three months, I, well, not even three months, it was probably two months. I thought I was going to finally make a go at Supercross, which was like my boyhood dream. So I ended up, um, raining out with, uh, Ryan Villapoto and I can't remember who the other rider, rider was, Adam Chatfield's Supercross track in Beaumont and got some kit suspension on a CRF 450 and started training Supercross for like maybe six weeks. And, um, and then, and then I think reality set in that okay, it was going to be a beast to try to chase even a West coast, you know, supercross season, uh, you know, on a 450, just one seeing how fast Bill Lapota was, which I think was awesome that he was there. Cause I could see it's like, he's like eight seconds a lot faster than me on a practice supercross track. Like, or maybe it was 10. I don't even know. It was something ridiculous on a 48 second lap time where I'm eight to 10 seconds slower than him. And I'm just looking at myself like, maybe, you know, maybe this isn't the best career choice. And then, uh, fortunately my dad, uh, had 
connections with with Kawasaki. I think I, I can't remember exactly how it came about, but suddenly I just I just kind of remember sitting down with Reed Nordine and talking about doing a Kawasaki supported effort and um, kind of like a satellite team because obviously at that time Kawasaki had their factory in house works and enduro cross team. And so my dad kind of proposed to do like a three rider support, you know, factory support team. So it was myself, Jamie Lanza and Taylor Robert. And, um, so that was, that was kind of the, the first, the first time I thought I'd put Baja behind me. And then through 2009, I, I just struggled, honestly, like really struggled in the Grand Prix series. And so, uh, that was when the the opportunity to go back down to Baja just for the 1000 with Bruce Penhall and monster and just that, that whole effort kind of came about. And so it was kind of like a way to kind of reignite my racing, my racing spark, because at that time I was like, I, I'm, I might as well just retire. I guess I wasn't as good as I thought I was, you know, in, in the grand prix stuff. And so then I went down to Baja and became so close to winning. So it kind of re re inspired me. And then 2010 and 11 were kind of the same story as far as American based. Like I, I kind of, struggled. I had kind of some health health issues that I didn't know were issues, but were holding me back. Um, and so, so again, I kind of towards the end of 2011, uh, there was another opportunity from Scott Jacobson and, and THR uh, Motorsports. They approached me to go back down to Baja. And so that was, that was what brought me back down on the Cowie kind of like more full-time from then to 2013. And, and then when, when we lost Kurt in 2013 and I had a really bad crash too. I think that one's actually, I have my GoPro. Um, I have the GoPro on my YouTube channel of that one. And I just, I come up over this rise. I'm in third or fourth gear, 60 miles an hour. And then there's like a, it must've been like the knuckle of a stump. Just like maybe like think about hitting just a fist size stump in the ground that I just never saw. And it just popped my front end over. And all of a sudden I'm going 60 miles an hour on the side of the trail, like just going towards these huge, not like yuccas, but basically like big, big yucca trees and just, end over end, um, knocked myself out. I don't remember. I think it was like three or four minutes of that. And so at that point, the end of 2013, I was like, that's it. I'm done. You know, between, between my experience in Baja and then obviously losing Kurt, I was like, that's it. I'm never going back down. But unfortunately, like I always kind of had those demons of unfinished business in Baja. And so, uh, so 2014 rolls around and my dad at the time was supporting Ricky Brayback. And he was on, he was riding a Kawasaki. And so he had actually won the, I think he had won two out of the first three because they had the one American race or maybe it swept it. I can't remember, but basically he had the points that he going into the thousand. And this was, you talk about uh, heart to hearts with my wife. We sat down and I was like, I feel like I need to go down one more time, like on my terms, not go super send, just ride Baja to enjoy it. And like kind of have my own send off my own piece with it of like, we could, we could DNF, we could get first, we could get second or third. It doesn't matter. I just need to go down there and have a good experience, like a good last experience in the pro class in Baja. And so that's what I went down there with the, the mindset to do. And to be fair, Colton Udall just blew my doors off, off the start, like past me, like I was standing still. And I remember it clearly, it was over this blind rise that would kind of tailed off to the right down the, the backside of the blind rise. And, um, and he like, I lifted never really lifted and uh you can tell him like if that's what you want to do have at it like i'm gonna do me right now and that's what i did and i mean fortunately we ended up we ended up winning uh 
winning that race and just just I think our team our team was the better rounded team on the day and um, we ended up winning the race winning the one X championship and it was like the perfect way for myself and Steve Hengevel to kind of kind of done the same thing with me through the the early two, 2010s as far as trying to win it on a Cowie. Um, it was a perfect send off for both of us. So that was like tapping the the best way I could end my Baja career, and that was that was the final the final one. Well, so you win it in 14 on your last ride um, and exercise your demons at the same time. Exactly. Because I'll be honest, like that 2009, give a little more context. In 2009, the first year I went back down to the Cowie and that was like, I, I was, we, we teamed with, it was myself, Jeffrey Abbott, Steve Angevelt, and then Ryan and Connor Penhall. And, um, and man, Destry and I just absolutely crushed it during the daytime. And, um, and Ryan Penhall rode, rode well. And, and we, we had a good lead and I had like the, in my mind, like the gnarliest section, just going up old Portisitas road through all just that, that crap, um, a bunch of the washes in San Felipe and then all the way up to the Mike's turn. And I had just mastered all of, all of that rough stuff, like rode it probably the best I could ever hope to ride it. The bike felt just amazing. I felt amazing. I think I pulled like, 10 or 12 minutes on the Honda and, um, and literally had, had gotten to right where the dirt road parallels highway three and like maybe a quarter mile from getting on the highway. And like, then I just would have ridden down the highway, speed controlled, given the bike to Destry and we would have been on our way. And, uh, I, I was about, like I said, a quarter mile from where the dirt turns onto the asphalt. And I remember thinking to myself, I did it. And right as I do that, I'm sitting on the seat and it was low shadows. The sun was just starting to go down. And then I sit down and think I did it. It just pitches me sideways and I just cartwheel and bend the bars to where like it was like a chopper on the right side. And, um, and we ended up losing like there, there were other, some other things that happened that you could point to. But like for me, I lost this that race because we were cruising at that point, like 10 or 12 minute lead. You know, Destry was going to get on. Connor was going to get on. Steve was going to own the night section. Like we would have had it. And, and I threw that away because I just, I, I relished it a little too early. And so that, that was like the start of my Baja demons. And so that's like, I had nightmares about that, like waking up at night, just not able to not think about it. The fact that I just got complacent, felt like the job was done before it was done and threw it away. So anyway, so then to go through everything that I did, through 2011, 12, 13, and then go back down to 2014. And I mean, I, I was just almost, honestly like a passenger on the team at that point. Like I was, I went off the start, got it from point A to point B. I think I had another section and, and rode well, but you know, I wasn't, I wasn't going as fast as like Ricky and, and the guys, but like Steve absolutely crushed it at night. Ricky rode really well. And, uh, Max Eddie too, he was, I mean, he was going really fast as well. And, uh, so to be able to be a part of that team and then, put all the demons to bed and win it that way was, uh, it was just the perfect send off. That's pretty awesome. Do, did you do much night racing? No. No, the extent of my, was 24 hours at Glen Helen and I love it on the closed course. I should actually, let me, let me go back. So the extent of my night racing in Baja was in 2006. And, um, so I was teaming with Kendall. It was our first Baja 1000 on the 450X. And I crashed off the start, just completely yard sailed because I was pushing too hard in the dust, trying to get to the lead. Didn't see a, a booby trap. I think it was like a, a log or something that some guys had pulled out. 
And I remember like, I'm just pushing this guy's dust, like, come on, come on. I got to get him. Got to get him. And for like a split second, that seems like an eternity the the dust cleared. And in my mind, I remember thinking finally, and just as I think, finally, I'm hitting the log and going end over end, which the leader had done. And that's why the dust had cleared. So, um, so anyway, I get up from that. I actually go backwards on the course, probably a mile until Mikey Childress comes around a corner and he's on the one X bike. And I remember riding and I'm like, when I, when I start to kind of come to, I'm like, man, this doesn't look familiar. I've pre-run this so much. Why, what, what course am I on? And then all of a sudden I see one X turn a corner and come at me. I'm like, why is Mikey going backwards? And then it's like light bulb. I'm going backwards. So turn around. And that was like 40 miles into the race. I had another 290 miles of that section. So I get to El Crucero and lost plenty of time, but we were still running, I think second at the time, but I'd lost a lot of time. But anyway, I finished my section, did my 330 miles, probably seven, eight hours on the bike. And, uh, I was done, like literally just drained and done. And then I get reports because Kendall got on the bike and I started getting reports that he had crashed. And all I could think about when we were getting those reports is like, please be okay. Cause I do not want to get back on a dirt bike. And then they said, Kendall broke his wrist. Robbie's got to get back on because Johnny was too far down the peninsula to get to come up to us. So I had to get back on the bike and I got back on the bike and I'd have to go back and look at a map and to remember exactly where it was. But basically it was going into the salt flats just as the sun was going down. And I had never ridden a night in Baja. Um, <laughs> so I was, I hadn't really recovered well because of preparing to get back 200 plus miles to go at night and that was like the freakiest the freakiest time i've ever had on her bike because hallucinating well one i thought i was lost half the time because baja like especially back then uh, well, I guess, I guess pretty much all the time, but like they didn't have the greatest markings because you pre-rent. So you know where you're going. Like the most trail that I could see and hope that that was the right one. And, um, like going across the salt flats, man, I thought I was lost so many times and I'm just thinking to myself, like I'm in the middle of absolutely nowhere, no idea where I'm at, no idea where the highway's at, like how far it is to the highway. And then all of a sudden I just see a little reflector dangling off a bush and just be like, Oh, thank God. And then keep going. So, and later in my stint, I was actually starting to hallucinate that because I think I was just so wore down physically, emotionally, and mentally, I was actually starting to hallucinate that bushes on the side of the course were military guys with like AK-47s pointed at me and just freaking myself out. So, uh, the, the shining light is that I made it to the end of that, that stint, got the bike to Johnny and we ended up finish se- finishing second and winning the one X. But, um, but that was my one and only time racing a night in Baja and that was enough for my life. <laughs> that's a good story though that's a really good story okay I, I, I gotta I gotta go here um, you have a legend for a dad in the off-road industry and you have your own legacy uh, as well but when you talk off-road motorcycle suspension everybody knows your dad everybody I mean you can't there, there's supercross guys that idolize him as well. And how did that affect you? Because his legacy and his um, reputation was growing even before you started becoming um, a name in, in the racing world, in the desert world. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I, I think I didn't, I didn't really understand it or appreciate it back in like early 2000s because I was just focused like oh, I was going to be a motocross racer and and he was helping me do that you know he was just my dad and he was he was helping factory Honda off-road and we'd go out to the desert and stuff like that but it wasn't really in my consciousness and then um I think I started to appreciate it more like as I got as I got on to Honda and started my pro career and obviously working with him and I think I think I was, I was blessed because it helped me with like bike setup and just being able to, being able to feel what the bike does. And then through just communicating with him, because that's all we would do, you know, a lot of the time learning how to put what I feel into words. And that was like the, the biggest factor into improving a bike setup because it's so many, so many guys like they either know what they feel, but they can't explain it or they just ride a bike and they don't care. And, um, and it can be doing whatever. So I think that was like the biggest benefit, but I think definitely as I've gotten older, I've appreciated just there, there's not very many, there's not very many guys like my dad in, in the industry, as far as like thinking outside the box, the way he does, you know, coming up with ideas for, for something to try as far as bike setup, suspension setup, you know, just, just different, different ideas. Um, and then and then I think also I, my dad would, would echo this is like, he learned a lot from Bruce Ogilvy when, when he was working with Honda, because Bruce was really into chassis development. And I mean, we drilled holes in plenty of parts and, and frames just to see what it would do. And so, uh, Bruce kind of offered, gave us, gave us the opportunity to do that. And so I was super blessed between who my dad was and his knowledge. And then also being on Honda with underneath Bruce and Johnny and having that opportunity and have, having the resources to where we could just go to town with, with a drill gun on a chassis and like, Hey, you want to drill a hole in that linkage? Just see what it does. Go for it. And, you know, start with a, you know, three millimeter hole, work up to a seven, see what's too, too much, see what it does. And so we were able to learn so much about what, what suspension does, what chassis does and how the two can work together. It can completely ruin each other. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I think just, just being being in the position I've been in and having having my dad so supportive of my career, but also just the knowledge that he's had. I mean, it, it honestly it allowed me to have a career because after my dad going to Cowie and starting his satellite Cowie supported team that gave me the opportunity to keep racing, and then through 2010 and 11 when I wasn't really achieving, like I didn't have any I didn't have any right being on a team and. I'd say it was, it was probably those two years were the two years that somebody could say, Hey, that was, you know, he was on the team because his dad ran the team. And I fully acknowledge that and accept that. But I mean, shoot, it, it allowed me to find the things that I needed to find to where then 2012, I kind of turned a corner and, you know, and then the rest, the rest is history and was able to win some championships. So no, I, I, I definitely appreciate what, what my dad has, what my dad has accomplished. And, um, and he's just a humble dude. Like he, he just wants to make badass suspension and not worry about. This, uh, you know, make whatever front for, for bike setup and suspension. He just, he just wants to be the guy that goes to the track, does the testing. And can, so, um, can, can I mean, that, that's kind of cool. I mean, maybe I get some of that. Can you repeat that? Because, uh, we had a disruption in the Wi-Fi, right as you were telling me that your dad just wants to make badass suspension. 
<laughs> yeah, he just wants to make that a suspension. He's never, he's never really put, he's never been the guy to focus on the business and like, you know, build this, this empire or anything like that. He just wants to be the dude that goes to the test track and just works on the nitty gritty, the nuts and bolts coming up with the settings and, and making, making somebody else feel more confident on the bike so they can go faster and achieve more. Like that's, that's all he's ever wanted to do. That's all he's ever going to want to do. Um, so that, that's really cool. And, you know, there, there's ways where there's ways where for sure that's held him back in some respects. But I think, I think for the most part, that's what people appreciate about him because first and foremost, like he'll, he'll lose money because he just wants to make something right. Yeah, we had that same disruption again. There you are. It's okay. Yeah, it was, you. you were telling me he, was, he would lose money to make something right. Yeah, that's that's where I ended it. Yep. And he, he just wants he just wants to make it right. He does, he doesn't care about the business side so much. He just wants he he's just performance based, and that's been his blessing. At times a curse, but mostly his blessing. And do you work in precision concepts right now? Yeah. I'm very more focused on the the team, but obviously the business. And so, yeah, I'm I'm there and, and helping out my parents. Um, but yeah, my my main gig right now is is running the race team and trying to create the best platform that I can for for the guys that I have on the team to achieve their goals. I mean, honestly, like my motivation with the race team is is that racing allowed me to have the experiences that I did, and I, it's kind of my way of paying it forward while I'm in a position to do so um, to to the next generation. So your your every day is working on a team, but you're part time working in the in the suspension business. Yeah, just kind of working with my dad. I mean, we bounce ideas off each other. I'm not really in the nitty gritty at the shop, um, but you know, more more just kind of bouncing ideas off each other and and um, you know, kind of from that that aspect. That's pretty awesome. Round one for the works was already. Uh, it happened in Prim. How did the team do? Pretty good, honestly. Um, you know, un unfortunately, Zach had a, an injury leading into the season, so he's still recovering from that. Uh, and I mean, we're anxiously awaiting his return. Uh, but Tyler Lynn, it's his first year on our team. He's had two races under his belt, and uh, he ended up fourth at Prim, which was a great result for him. He ran up front for like 40 minutes. He showed showed the potential that that I, I saw and that, that Kawasaki saw. So, um, yeah, it was, it was really successful. That's awesome. That's really good. Uh, I hope you guys do awesome. And, uh, Robbie Bell, uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you on my show and to talk motorcycles and racing with you. Um, like I said, in the beginning, I'm a huge fan and I always will be. Um, and I had, I have mad respect for your dad. Uh, and I'll be honest, in the beginning, when I started learning about your dad, I was reluctant ATV guy. He can't really be that good. He really can't be that good. And then riding a couple machines, talking to people that I really respected, and then just opening my eyes to the things that he was really doing um, it made me realize what a what a great suspension man he was. And we need people like him in the industry to to de dedicate his life to make it better for everybody. 
No, for sure. I mean, that, that's not too many people know that he, I mean, he's, he's made some really good suspension for, for quads and ATVs for desert and for, for moto and Grand Prix as well. And even like he dabbled in side by sides for a hot second. And like, if he wanted to, he could make up, he could make some really good settings for side by sides. But yeah, he's, he's just gifted in that respect, but he's, yeah, he's all moto and, uh, yeah, looking for it. Not to get off on talking about your dad, he worked with the ATV champion, one of the legendary guys down there in the ATV world, which was Wayne Matlock, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I worked with him for a bunch of years. And he actually worked with him when he went to short course in his side by side, too, and uh, and, and set up his, his side by side for some off road stuff and then also for some short course stuff. So we learned a lot about that. And like I said, he's just, he's just gifted in that respect. Like he kind of understands the mechanics and even though it's so different, so much different inertia, the weight and the, the style of, you know, how the suspension is, or how the, the chassis works, the suspension, he's, he was able to pick it apart and made some really good stuff. That's awesome. That's awesome. And again, I, I want to extend the invitation like I always do uh, to most of my guests. I would love to have you back at, at any time, um, whether it be a group chat or whether it just be to talk more racing with you. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. San Diego's Body Evolution and Wellness Center. With over 17 years experience, Dr. Heidi looking out after all your chiropractic needs and Coach PJ looking out after all your fitness needs. Visit our website, www.bodyevolution.org, or call for an appointment, 619-987-8875. Duncan Technologies International. More than 33 years in the industry building racing programs and ATVs around the world. We build winners. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't forget to rate us on all available platforms and share us with your loved ones. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more ATV Talk News. See you next time.